You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. 1930, and President Hoover met with his cabinet discussing the emergency with the economy when his bodyguards were alerted with distressing information. Motorcycle sirens are then heard in the White House building and up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. Police run to the White House, spread out to cover the perimeter of the area, and guard the gates. Secret Service men come into the White House building, then into the cabinet room, issuing commands along the way. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In the rooms of the White House, the press, reporters, and photographers are mingling with staff. But all the while, they're watching this all, scribbling down notes, trying to get a shot or two. Now the new technologies, trucks bearing sound newsreel equipment, lumbered up to get into position. Let's get this all on tape. They notice Vice President Curtis leaves the cabinet meeting with a bodyguard hopping into the car beside him. Not usual at all for the vice president. The problem soon made its way through the whispering souls in the building. There was a report of a communist demonstration that was about to come to the White House. A demonstration for unemployment relief. Here's Time Magazine from 1930. Police, newshawks, cameramen, bodyguardsmen, idlers, the president himself, waited tensely for the picketers to arrive. One hour passed. Then another. Where are those pickets, they almost said. But not a red showed up. The police began drifting away. It was, in the end, a false alarm. But the real one would come three days later, and it was a real humdinger. Fourteen persons, that's right, fourteen. It was raining, but they were not deterred. They unfurled their banner. Mr. Hoover, we demand food and lodging. Mr. Hoover, you have money for the entertainment of fascist assassin Grandi, the foreign minister of Mussolini's government, but not for us. The problem was quickly solved. Police arrested all 14 of them for parading without a permit. And their leader was Herbert Benjamin, and he's arrested in full view of the press and cameras. He loudly explains that when Congress sits on December 7th, a thousand hunger marchers would be in Washington demonstrating for relief. Well, where would he get this crowd? He had 14, now it's going up to a thousand. But the Secret Service, along with the press, now made it easy. They took him at his word, and the chief of the Secret Service said they had uncovered a huge scale, a huge operation. Marchers from all parts of the country would be brought to Washington in 1,100 trucks. The only thing Chief Moran of the Secret Service said he had failed to ascertain was where the money was all coming from. But he assumed it would be Moscow. 
Well, after this news comes out, now Benjamin Herbert has enough publicity about this march that will happen that a march does actually happen. But it's settled peacefully. The midterm election of 1930 was like most midterm elections. You know, the one of 2022 was an exception, but a total disaster for the president in his first term, and that was Herbert Hoover. I ask the help of Almighty God in this service to my country to which you have called me. His Republican Party loses 52 House seats. That's really a reversal of the trend of his 1928 win, where he had just defeated Al Smith by a big margin, even one in Smith's home state. But even though they lost this many seats, Republicans in the House had a buffer, because all through the 1920s, the Republican Party was winning these congressional elections. They could breathe a sigh of relief. Despite the loss, they retained the House speakership by a single vote, but they maintained the House speakership. 216 Democrats, 218 Republicans, and one farm labor, probably going to side with the Democrats. So under the popular Nicholas Longworth, described as debonair and aristocratic, given to wearing spats and carrying a gold-headed cane, perpetually cheerful, quick with a joke or a witty retort, and unfailingly friendly. He never seemed to have a care and made hard decisions with such ease and detachment that some people wondered if anything at all really mattered to him. Yet, Longworth controlled that Congress as much as Speaker Joe Cannon or Champ Clark or other famous speakers. Nonetheless, he just did it in such a nice way. So the gavel was going to him. But this is how 1930 is different. This is why people are talking about the 72nd Congress, and they probably shouldn't be. There's 13 months in between the time those elections happen and the new House starts. And something happens. Congressman John F. Quayle died, Democrat from New York. And yeah, I looked that up, by the way, and I don't think so. No relation. Quayle's actually a very common name, kind of an anglicization of uh, McPhail. Very common name. Um, Congressman John F. Quayle dies. He's a Democrat from New York. Lee Slater-Overman died. A Democrat from North Carolina. They hold a memorial for him. That speaker, Nicholas Longworth, presides. The Radio Tone Quartet, polished vocal group, sings, say a prayer. And it doesn't escape anyone's attention in this very closely divided house that each one of these events as morbid as it seems, does matter. Newspapers of this time in 1930 are reporting on these events. The Democrats have lost two of their House members. So now it's 214 and 218 until they can get another special election going. So majority of four technically for the GOP. Then David J. O'Connell of New York dies. Well-respected member of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce and the Elks, an active Brooklynite. The Brooklyn Eagle newspaper said at the time, it also noted that it would not change the complexion of the House, meaning the party. It's 218 Republican, 213 Democrat until special elections could be had. Were the Democrats steamed about this, losing that closeness between the two parties in the House? Maybe, but not really, because... Uh, things could be partisan at times, but, you know, it's not kind of 2022. These were Democratic districts. 
where these members died generally, and special elections would likely replace them with members of their own party anyway. And besides, the Democratic leader, John Nance Garner of Texas, really liked the Republican leader and speaker, Nicholas Longworth. After all, Longworth had the House automobile and gave Garner a ride to work every day. What a lesson in bipartisanship. But nonetheless, there it was... Um, a contention selection in 1930 held in a tough year. The stock market crash had happened in October 1929. And 1930, despite what the administration kept saying on the radio, wasn't getting any better. The radio kept saying it was, but it didn't feel like that to people. And the first time since the stock crash of 1929 and the resulting closing of companies and failures of banks, this is the first federal election that voters get a say in in most places since the events of 1929. Herbert Hoover still saying the corner has turned. It's a temporary emergency. He uses these terms, you know, depression. It sounds terrible now. But depression's actually a way of just picture like a uh, chart that goes up and then down, a little depression, right? In the, um, a little bit of, that goes down and then up. A little bit of a downturn in the market. That's all that it means. It's a very businessman's way of describing an economic disaster. The low part of business and employment was the latter part of December and early January. Since that time, employment has been slowly increasing and the situation is much better today than at that time. This is what he says in March. The amount of unemployment is, in proportion to the number of workers, considerably less than one half of which resulted from the crashes of 1908 and 1920 to 1922. So in 1930, these are the years, you know, when we talk, we're looking back at 2008. When Hoover talks, he's looking back at 1908 and 1920 and saying it's not as bad. By October, he had to admit that the reversal he predicted didn't immediately come. We have had a severe shock and there has been disorganization in our economic system, which has temporarily checked the march of prosperity. But Hoover still goes on the attack. No one can occupy the high office of president and conceivably be anything other than completely confident in the future of the United States. There are few folks in business, Hoover notes, and several folks in the political world who resent the notion that things will ever get better and who wish to enjoy our temporary misery. But we're not like that, in effect, is what Hoover says. Don't listen to those professional naysayers. The fundamental assets of the nation, right? We still have our intelligence. This is actually what he says. We still have our education, right? We still have our virility. The Depression didn't take that away. We still have our spiritual strength. Our 120 million people in those ways have been unimpaired. It's great spin. Do voters believe it? A lot of people don't have a job, and it's hard to tell how many they even, you know, were unemployed. These records weren't kept as well as they are today, even though it's President Hoover himself in his former iteration as Secretary of Commerce who starts the government even measuring unemployment. He's one of the first people to use the term unemployment in a federal government setting. 
Hoover's government and the Census Bureau said it was 2.5 million. Democrats say it's 5 million. The American Federation of Labor said it was 3 million. So everyone disagreed about how many people were unemployed. But none of these numbers, even Hoover's number, are particularly great. During the summer, the administration said it would reverse and it would bulge in the fall. It's just a temporary summer reduction in the economy. It didn't. Justice must not fail because the agencies of enforcement are either delinquent or inefficiently organized. To consider these evils and to find their remedy is one of the sore necessities of our time. President formed commissions. While in New York City, there were rioters that broke into City Hall, saying the city hadn't done anything. This after the city spent a million on unemployment relief. Hoover was taking action, the best action a president could. He was meeting with the New York Stock Exchange and expressing his worries about short sellers and bear market opportunists. They're the real issue. GOP chairman Fess hints that some leading Republicans are beginning to believe that there is some concerted effort on foot to use the stock market as a method of discrediting the Hoover administration. After all, every time an administration official gives out an optimistic statement about business conditions, the market immediately drops. The Democratic chairman, you can't say tinfoil hat in 1930s, they won't know what you're talking about, but he mocks the discovery that the GOP chairman has made without any evidence. The trouble is, he says, every time an administration official makes a prediction, they have not come true. So the campaign went. The campaign of 1930. The parties released their statements. There's a bit of entertainment here or there. I found this interesting note. Um, When was the South Dakota race for the Senate? You had Senator William McMaster. He was a maverick Republican who didn't like Hoover very much. Voted opposite the administration quite a bit. He found himself up against Governor John Bulow, who also didn't like Hoover. No love loss for Hoover in either side of this race, Time Magazine said. So what are they going to argue about? So in this kind of like evenly matched campaign in South Dakota, Bulow does the best thing he can. He does his best imitation of Will Rogers. And he gets a lot of yucks when he says, Hey, any great issues out here, I guess. And Bulow was a guy that while he was speaking, he'd be chewing tobacco and, and, and the audience just kind of liked it. Hey, any great issues out here, I guess. Mac's got a job and I want it. He won over the crowd. He won the electorate too. He'd end up winning that election, winning re-election after that. Maybe it was his humor. Maybe it was just that it was a good year for his party. It was in this scene that the midterm election result took place in 1930. And like most presidential midterms, it's a whopper for Hoover. He get crushed in the House. He does hold on to the Senate, so it's not all a loss. Given how Republicans had done in the 1920s, just absolutely dominated American politics and forced Democrats into this kind of minority status. Many of the congressmen kind of enjoyed where they were in the party, maybe not having to govern. But as we said, Republicans still hold the House, and Democrats lost a few members due to deaths. Then Henry Allen Cooper, a Republican of Wisconsin, dies. He's a legend in Wisconsin, but he's gone. Then James Benjamin Aswell, a Democrat from Louisiana, dies. Longworth and Garner 
are now sort of talking to each other like, hmm. And then, tragic event for the house. Speaker Nicholas Longworth himself dies. There is great mourning in the house for him. After Cooper and Longworth, George S. Graham, a Republican of Pennsylvania, Bird Vincent, a Republican of Michigan, Ernest Robinson Ackerman, a Republican of New Jersey, and Fletcher Hale, a Republican of New Hampshire, pass away. There's Democrats who pass away too during this time. But each one of them are in districts that in the special election, by the way, and this is right in the, you know, in the Constitution, it, there is a special election for that seat. The governor does not appoint like in a, the case of a Senate. There's no appointment. The people must, in some form or an election run by the state, the people must vote for that replacement. So in the Democratic districts, especially in this atmosphere of 1930 and some of the feelings about the Hoover administration. It's not just the depression. That's one fact. There's also a very unpopular tariff that was passed. His Democrats are returned. Uh, there's replacements returned to those districts. But for Graham, Vincent, Ackerman, and Hale, the results are different. Graham's seat is taken by another Republican. The other three go to a Democrat. While these are events are going on, a story in the New York Times. Mrs. Hoover, on roof of White House, watches Akron go by. Airship salutes sponsor at White House. Glistening in the rays of the early sun, the Navy's new airship, the Akron, paid its first official visit to the Capitol this morning. Motors were slowed down to idling speed as the craft circled about over the city. radio broadcast followed its progress. The Akron dipped low twice in salute, first over the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington, and then later over the White House, where Mrs. Hoover, the ship's sponsor, was watching from the roof, and the president was peering upward for a moment from the lawn. From his office in the Navy Department, Assistant Secretary Lee Jonke conversed with Rear Admiral William Moffat. Chief of Aeronautics aboard the Akron, using National Broadcasting Company shortwave facilities. He congratulated the Admiral and also the Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation, which built the ship. The Assistant Secretary of the Navy said, the Navy has built the Akron not only to demonstrate her usefulness for naval purposes, but for a new and more rapid means of international communication and commerce. We firmly believe that the Akron will so fully demonstrate the great value of rigid airships, not only for naval, but for commercial purposes. This ship will be a forerunner of a fleet of American airships flying the flag that will indeed make us first in this merchant marine of the air. And at the same time, Minority Leader John Ance Garner is conferring with his Republican counterpart, who's replaced Longworth, and they're looking at the returns coming in, back and forth, and this special election and that, and this congressman dying, and they're exchanging telegrams. The Republican has a question for him. What about that House of Representatives car 
It belongs to the speaker, but who does it belong to? You or I? And Garner replies, I think it's me, but I'll be happy to let you ride in it. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. And by the time Harry Wurzbach, the only Republican from Texas, a hard fight to get that seat. Republicans know they're going to have a tough go of it in the 72nd Congress coming up because they'll never hold this seat in Texas. They'll never be able to win that special election. As a German and with the strong support of the Texas Germans, he's was a member of a community of Texas Germans in World War One, and came up with an idea to constantly hold patriotic rallies and celebrations so that community wouldn't be persecuted. He's getting an appendectomy and there are complications. He dies. Republicans can't win the seat in Texas. They know it, and they're right. So again, you started with Republicans had lost 52, but they still had a 218 to 216 advantage in the House of Representatives. By the time you get to 13 months later, 14 representatives-elect have died. And then in the subsequent elections to fill the vacancies, Democrats gain a majority. On opening day, Democrats have 219 to 212. House chaplain James Sherrill Montgomery eulogized Longworth in the opening prayer. Before us is an image of our most notable one, a sad and mournful yesterday dictates our sorrow. Through the years he camped with us in the embrace of a sweet and beautiful fraternity. And Longworth's friend, Democrat John Nance Garner of Texas, is elected speaker and takes the gavel. Watching, no doubt, is Alice Longworth Roosevelt. Yes, this is the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, who is married to Longworth. It's the only time that this happens in this way in history, the people going out to a vote elect a Congress that should be led by a Republican, 
But by the end, with all the special elections, there's a Democrat who holds the speaker's gavel. And that that will continue. You know, it wasn't just a fluke election, which many probably thought um, as not just a fluke. That'll continue for another 16 years. In talking about the 72nd Congress and how 14 members elect died, I don't want to sound morbid here, um, particularly about historical figures when we examine them to counter some of that. I'll tell a few stories. It might be useful to know. They weren't cardboard figures. Let's face it, they were. most of them shared the same gender, race, and religion in most cases. But they weren't cardboard figures. One grew up in a household that had been used as a stop in the Underground Railroad. His mother and father, active abolitionists. One was a prosecutor in Philadelphia who was responsible for catching, trying, and seeing executed the country's most notorious serial killer, who had eluded authorities. He not only tried the case, but solved it, put the police on the right trail, all this before entering Congress. Another was a talented violinist and ached to get home to his district and play with a local orchestra or with friends. He never had much time to play his violin in Washington, and in that political city there were very few people to play with him. Another was a World War I veteran representing the new young blood in Congress but unfortunately had an early-aged heart attack. Well, another among the 14 was a Spanish-American war veteran. Still another cast his vote against U.S. entry into World War I, with just a handful of congressmen doing that at the same time, and to the jeers of many in the chamber and the press. Another looked at the State Department system of favoring wealthy donors and appointments, in the U.S. diplomatic stations and got a bill passed to equalize it for people who entered the service and paid their dues as career State Department workers. Still another had spoken out adamantly against the Klan and tried to get his national party to do something about it at their convention to no avail. Another was encyclopedia salesperson in Brooklyn, a member of the local Elks Club, the Chamber of Commerce, and other local charities. He became a top salesperson in his company. And then, with his hell of a fella nature, he was easily elected to Congress. Another was a butcher turned congressman, also a member of Elks and Lions Clubs, who spent his career defending his home Navy yard from attempts to move ship work elsewhere. And still another was the author of Ohio's relatively new and well-respected absentee voter law, which set national precedent. Each one was mourned greatly in the chamber and in parts of the country that they came from. Although it's also true to say that as I read um, newspaper accounts of them and, and try to see pictures of them and try to get a way to convey what went on, I do see in the newspaper accounts, in each one, references to the status between the Democratic and Republican parties in the various newspapers 
as the deaths and funeral services of these congressmen are announced. So it isn't like we're the only one looking at the politics they did at that time as well. It's morbid to talk about the deaths of people. You don't wish anyone's death, even if they're a politician, I would hope in most cases, um, unless the person's done something to you personally, you know, it seems a little odd to start doing that. Um, there's usually not situations where these matter all that much, but they do happen. It's a lot more common in British Parliament at different times where deaths have actually changed governments or reduced a prime minister to a minority one. It really, we have 1930. And something else has changed. When you look at the reasons some of these 14 members pass away, some of them are older, not all of them. It's a couple of 50-year-olds in there. So it's not just that people are older, but there is a slight age edge to House members. But it's also, you see people dying of like hernia operations, complications from surgery, pneumonia. It's not like people don't die of this, but you know, you didn't have the development of antibiotics, better blood pressure control, say. It's a lot of heart attacks. It's not like uh, members of the House don't pass away, uh, sorry to say, in current times. There were two in 2021. There are actually four in 2022. Um, there was one in 2020. But it's not all the time. Like There were none in 2014, one in 2013, one in 2015, one in 2016. In a 435-member body, you, you're barely going barely to make news stories in some cases outside of their districts. But you had more back then. Like, for instance, there were nine in 1928. There were nine in 1951, six in 1950. It was just a little bit more common. Now, that being said, that patch in those 13 months was a little bit unusual, a little bit higher. When you have something that's as close as the 119th Congress, and we're talking about you know, we know the result of the midterm. It was disappointing for Republicans and it was seen as a positive for Biden and the Democratic Party. But the reality is there was a loss of the House. The Republicans gained nine House seats, did particularly well in New York and Florida. Uh, but it was anemic compared to history and definitely compared to the expectations in 2022. It's an ugly win. The 119th Congress will now meet in January so 213 Democrats, 222 Republicans. You need 218 for a majority. Now, it's not normal for the Speaker to vote, but on a lot of these, he's probably going to have to. Whoever that is, we don't know who the Speaker will be yet because there's already forces working against Kevin McCarthy. Possibly there's a consolidation at the end. The odd thing, I just my current politics comment is, the odd thing I think people are missing is that one of the reasons McCarthy's having so much troubles is because the party's divided, but also because Trump is weaker politically. See, because how I thought this might happen is, yeah, Kevin McCarthy's having a little trouble with some few people maybe run against him, but he'll consolidate once Trump goes to work for him. And, you know, he does what he has to do with Trump, and then Trump says, this is my endorsed candidate, vote for him, and you're going to have a problem if you don't. But Trump doesn't have that kind of political power, and that's evident. And so there's other forces working. So that's going to be a, a, a tough speaker's race. Um, we talked about a previous cast. You always have that possibility. Democrats could, could coalesce and join with somebody. Because of a death, they're down one House member. 
probably not much of a possibility there that there would be traitor Republicans in this kind of what they would be considered in this kind of political atmosphere, especially because the rewards for now working, say, to put a Democrat as the speaker to put some kind of like false Republican backed with Democratic votes as the speaker is really only two years. It's not a long time. And what do you get? Most House members want a long career. Say most. But you know what? We should get used to all the things that can happen. But here's the other thing. Once they do elect a speaker, so that speaker's in until the speaker is removed, until the speaker's unable to serve or dies. So then the question is, let's say something like the 72nd Congress happens, right? Through natural events, the party composition of the House changes. Do you automatically remove the speaker? That's an interesting question. It hasn't happened before. Speaker has not been removed from office. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution establishes the position that says, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. So the Constitution, nor the rules of Congress say anything specific about removing that speaker. But you can make both arguments right there in the constitutional language alone. If we can choose our speaker, we can choose our speaker, right? If we choose a speaker now, we choose not to have that speaker. You also see in there, and have the sole power of impeachment. Yeah, we'd have to probably go to the Supreme Court. I'd lean on the side that it could be done. Here's from Georgetown Government Affairs Institute when this question came up around the speakership of John Boehner and Kenneth Gold, the director of the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown, wrote this. He was blocking a clean bill on a government shutdown and it was speculated if the speaker were to do so, it would mean the end to his speakership. But could it? The Jefferson Manual, written by Thomas Jefferson when he was vice president and used by the House to supplement its standing rules in Section 9 states, a speaker may be removed at the will of the House and a speaker pro tempore appointed. But even that clause may not necessarily apply to removing a speaker, as it follows examples of speakers being replaced due to illness and appointing of speakers pro tempore in those instances. The current rules call that a speaker names already speakers that may serve in that person's place in case there's an illness or unable to serve. Nevertheless, Kenneth Gold writes, it's generally believed that a speaker can be removed, which would be executed by a member offering a resolution declaring the office of the speaker vacant. Such a resolution would be considered a question of constitutional privilege and therefore a privileged motion. Although again, it's never been done because that speaker who's being removed could say, it's not vacant. That's not right. I am standing here. So the answer is there's no explicit procedure for removing a speaker either in the Constitution or in the rules of the House of Representatives. But the Constitution is clear that the House makes its rules. It would lead to an interesting question. But even if you can't get the speakership back, right, even if a person is there now ruling as a minority speaker in effect, still able to block legislation and refer bills to committee and things like that, but not have enough votes to do anything, There's something else. Majority can do. It's not an easy procedure. You don't want to do it on everything. But if you use a discharge petition, you get 218 members to sign the discharge petition. You force the vote. In other words, the House Majority Leader now has 
no way of blocking or delaying that legislation. There's still a long time before you can do a discharge procedure. You have to wait 20 days while it's a bill's been referred to committee if the speaker's trying to like get rid of it. And um, you're only going to be able to do it again on legislation where there's a significant group of Republicans that want to vote for it. So some kind of bipartisan. It's been tried like in 2014. It was an attempt to do it on minimum wage and it and it failed. But you can have a situation if the, for natural reasons, the complexion of the House changes um, and it's a little closer, you could get one or two and start running a couple of discharge petitions if there are issues where you think we can get a Republican vote or two. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Here's the opening of Congress in December 7th, 19. 19- 31 in from Time magazine in his trim cutaway William Tyler Page who has served as the bald and brown Republican clerk of the house since 1919 mounted the rostrum with a heavy heart and called to order the session he knew would cost him his job before him on the floor were almost a few hundred faces through the new guard of first termers the butcher baker candlestick maker the plain people incarnate Clerk Page had, as he always does, conducted a sort of legislative school for them earlier in the week, how things work in the House. He expounded parliamentary law, told them how to introduce bills, and warned them to address only the speaker, not the crowd, initiated them into the fiction of the Congressional Records Extension of Remarks. Mr. Speaker, I'd like to extend my remarks. 
Speaker Garner wore a brown speckled suit and was ceremoniously walked up a blue carpet and was installed as Speaker. 433 members stand before him, which was actually an attendance record. Only two were missing. One missing, one vacancy still in New Hampshire. He swore in the whole House membership at once. A Mr. South Trimble of Kentucky replaced Page as House Clerk, and the Bill Hopper, where members put bills into, was opened, and thousands of proposals were thrown in. The Speaker would have to sort through all that, along with his team. In the plaza, meanwhile, as we discussed in the beginning of the episode, Benjamin Herbert and his hunger marchers do get that together, and 1,600 hunger marchers had trucked into the Capitol from the North and Midwest. How much he would have gotten without the publicity of the Secret Service saying this demonstration was coming, we don't know. They were shouting, let us march, let us march, let us march to Capitol Hill to fight, to fight for an unemployment insurance bill. About the Capitol, machine guns were nested in high nooks and corners. It begs to make a little bit of comment about security on this day in December 7th, 1931, with this hunger strike, um, with this hunter, hunger crowd versus today. Policemen carried rifles and tear bombs. An ambulance stood ready in the background. Washington superintendent of police, smoking a long pipe, dashed about on a motorcycle. When marchers reached the plaza, they were encircled by police. But besides jeers and songs, all was peace and order. Some shoving, but in this era, weapons weren't needed. Police pushed them back with their shoulders and ejected them from the Capitol. The hunger marchers went into the, went over to the White House, where they were once again peaceably turned away at its gates. Inside, the action goes on. Here's Time Magazine again. Texas last week rubbed out the one Republican patch on its huge and otherwise Democratic congressional map, but by doing so, it definitely handed over control of the 72nd House to the first time to the democracy by a molecular majority. On the majority, a stocky little Texan with fiery blue eyes and stubby white hair prepared to mount the rostrum to the stiff, high-backed chair which holds the Speaker of the House and a power second, only that of the President. His name was John Nance Garner. To Miss Garner, a tall woman with graying hair, he refers as the boss. During his whole congressional career, she has been his active secretary and stenographer. She collects the Garner paycheck, pays the bills, finds the lost papers around the office. Society holds no lure for him. He wears gray suits, slightly wrinkled, and big, blunt-toed shoes. Often he appears on the house floor in need of a shave. Now, Garner does two things that's interesting given today's politics and a Democrat coming to office in the middle of an emergency which looks really bad for the Republican president and the Republican members of Congress at the time. One is he makes it clear he likes Hoover. So he tells newspaper men, he says, look behind me. And what has he got? A photograph of Hoover that's signed in his office. Are you going to see that today? Mm, Not so sure. Secondly, he tells Hoover, let me know what you need and we'll do it. Let's pass um, legislation. Let's not just be obstructionist. Now, how the politics will actually work out by the time you get to 1932 and people are starting to actually 
talk about Speaker Garner running for president. You have to understand, too, that in 1930, after this amazing result of the 72nd Congress, the 1930 election, Garner is kind of the country's most powerful Democrat. He's the highest ranking federal officer as Speaker of the House. Al Smith, who had been leading the party previously, just suffered through an election loss in 1928, where he lost his own state. You do have FDR, and FDR is waiting in the wings. There's a But initially, a lot of this attention focuses on this man who's now Speaker. And he does try. He and President Hoover work together to try and pass a sales tax. But between insurgent Republicans and Democrats that are bucking the Speaker, that sales tax in the midst of a depression will not get passed. There is finally one more note to make. That car of the House of Representatives that we talked about, that Longworth used to ride Garner in. When Garner becomes speaker, he refuses it. Walking is good enough for me. These are little notes in history that I think are important because I'm always, when I'm doing things, trying to think about people. And for instance, as I did this cast and looked at each member who passed away, I tried to get a picture. I tried to get some biographical information. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.